there was uh, a, a German, a Frenchman, and a Jew uh, were uh, cap captured by the, uh, I don't know, bad guys, cannibals, uh, whatever. <laughs> just, just a joke. Don't, don't, don't worry. They weren't really captured. It's just a joke. And uh, so th they were brought before the firing squad, and they were given the request for their last meal, you know, last meal. So they asked the German, what's, what's your last meal? And he said, I would like some uh, bratwurst and beer. So they got him bratwurst and beer, and they shot him. And then they asked the Frenchman, what's your last meal? He says, I would like a uh, baguette and uh, red wine. And they got him a baguette and red wine, and they shot him. And they asked the Jew, what's your last meal? He says, strawberries. They said, strawberries? Strawberries aren't in season right now. The Jew says, no, I'll wait. <laughs> okay. Okay. An interesting thing in Parshas Shlach regarding the setting of the story. We know where it takes place. It takes place in the wilderness. And uh, the Jews are going into the land, or at least representatives of the Jews, the spies, are going into the land to check it out. And then they come back to the wilderness and they report. That's where it takes place. When does it take place? Well, it takes place when the Jews are in the wilderness, right. But um, more specifically, if you can pinpoint it to a time, and by the way, time-wise, we do know they came back on Tisha B'Av. Right. right? Okay. Um, and it was a 40-day trip. So we can work out through different clues approximately what time of year it was, but that's not how the Torah describes it. Toyota tells us when it wants to set the scene, you know, every story has to have a setting. When it wants to set the scene, what does it tell us? It tells us, the Hayomim in those days, Yimei Bikure Anovim. Those days were the days of the ripening of the grapes. In other words, those were the days when the grapes are in season. Okay. Why is it important for us to know that this story takes place when the grapes are in season? First of all, first of all, um, when Moshe Rabbeinu sent them, he told them, take from the fruit of the land, meaning any kind, a few different kinds. So it wasn't specifically grapes that they had to bring back. And in fact, you see, they brought back various different species. And, 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 and this is the second of all. The second of all is, apparently from the fact that they brought back various different species, those species were in season as well. So it wasn't just the ripening of the grapes. Apparently, other fruits were ripe at the same time. So why does the Torah emphasize that the setting of this story is in the, specifically the days of the ripening of the grapes? Okay, fine. So uh, I, I don't know what's your patience level. You want to hear the, the answer at the end or you want to hear it right away? Want to come back to it or you want to hear it right now? What? You don't want to forget the question, so you just want to hear right away. Okay, fine, no problem. It's a democracy here, we'll do whatever, whatever the people want. So I'll give you the answer right up front. A, uh, a grape is an interesting fruit. It has a very thin skin. 
very thin skin, translucent skin. You can see through the grape skin. And uh, that's different than many other fruits. I mean, picture, uh, well, think of some of the other fruits that the, the spies brought back, like a pomegranate. You can't see through a pomegranate. It's a very opaque and thick uh, shell, of course. Very, uh, not able to see through it. Or, uh, or uh, a fig. Can't see through a fig. But not really. Yeah. I mean, we, we should have brought a light board. You know, like the, the cautious people with the romaine lettuce, with the bugs on the light board. Should have brought a light board. Um, but a grape, if you hold a grape up to the light, you can see the seed inside. You know, I did this once, actually, for a group of kids. And I went out. I was such a good teacher. I went out and I bought grapes at the store. You know what's going to happen. You know what you see. It's, you see what's coming. I went out and I bought grapes, and uh, they were seedless grapes. No. <laughs> so I couldn't illustrate the point. But the point <laughs> would have been if they would have had seeds like normal grapes. Is that if you hold a grape up to the light, you can see the seed inside. What's the point? The point is that um, you know there's something in Kabbalah called klipa. Klipa is a byword for negativity. And klipa literally means shell or peel. So why is negativity called a shell or a peel? Because essentially everything is godly and everything is good because everything was created by Hashem for a purpose. It's just a matter of revelation and concealment. Some things, they're very obvious how they are giving glory to Hashem. And those things have no covering, no peel, so to speak. And we call that kedusha. we call that holiness. Then there are other things where you look at it like, why does this even exist in God's world? Where the covering, meaning the form in which it exists in this world, is very opaque. So you can't even see that it's God's creation. Maybe it even looks like something that's rebelling against God's plan, which is really impossible because if God made it, it's part of his plan. But the point is that we call that a klippa. And um, sometimes we, in Kabbalah we talk about the shalash klippas at Timaeus, the three utterly impure klippas, uh, which... Are, uh, by the way, correspond to the different, if you've ever seen a walnut growing from a tree. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they look like uh, tennis balls. They're green. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you ever saw a walnut from a tree. But the shell that we're used to seeing is already the uh, second shell. Well, the, the, the outer shell that we identify as the shell, that's, like the, that's really the second shell, not the first shell. There are really three shells that are inedible, and then there's a thin little membrane which is edible, that's like the klipasnoiga. Klipasnoiga means the translucent or the shiny klipa. Um, you know, the planet Venus is called noiga because it shines. Yeah. So uh, noiga means to shine. Uh, so there are shalish klipas of Timaeus, three utterly irredeemable klipas, uh, which you can see when you look at a, a walnut, you know, it has three levels that are inedible, irredeemable. You can't use them. Uh, and then there's the thin membrane, which is, it's not, the, it's not the, the, the nut itself, but it's an edible membrane. That's like klipasnoiga. Klipasnoiga is the neutral category. Uh, and it's called klipasnoiga because you can sort of, I mean, metaphorically, see the spark of godliness in it. The spark of godliness is an open, and uh, like, like in, a, in, in something that's kedusha, something that's holy, you look at it, you look at a Sefer Torah, and you don't have to, you have a lot of imagination to see how this is useful for the service of Hashem. 
something that an object that is Kaddish, that is holy, you look at it and you say, in the form that it's in right now, it is very obvious how this is in service of Hashem. Um, then there are things that you look at and they're so covered over with the form in which they exist in this world. You say, how could that ever be for the service of Hashem? And th- though, by the way, those things, how do we use them to serve Hashem? Because if everything is created for, for Hashem's glory, then it has to also have a role. Yeah, what's, what's the role of something like that? Avoiding it. <laughs> Avoiding it. Leaving it alone, right? So, uh, and then there's the, 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 the vast majority of the physical world is klipas noigas, the neutral stuff. So, you know, you look at the cup of coffee, it's not holy, meaning it's not overtly like, oh, this is a holy object, like, you know, we have to treat it with reverence, like, there's nothing holy about it. On the other hand, it's not prohibited, no one put, no one put anything in my coffee, right? Okay, so then, it's not prohibited, okay, which would mean the only relationship I could have with it would be to avoid it, stay away from it, it's just sort of neutral, it's klipas neuge, which means that if you have vision, if you're creative, you can sort of look at it and you can think, oh, I see, I can take this ordinary mundane thing that's not holy or profane, it's just sort of spiritually neutral, and I can drink it and I can use the energy or the caffeine there that's making my brain work faster and I can uh, teach some Torah and elevate the energy there. So that's called Klipas Neuge. Now, if you remember the whole story of the Meraglim was really, on a spiritual level, a story of coming of age for our people, where we had to make the transition from a purely theoretical Judaism to a practical Judaism. And uh, that was a difficult transition because many of uh, the, the, the elite, many of the most spiritually evolved people wanted Judaism to remain theoretical. And they were happy to remain in the Midbar. Not only they were happy to, they preferred. They preferred to remain in the Midbar because they had the Torah already. The Torah had already been given at Sinai. So they can just study Torah. They can contemplate on its truths. And uh, what are they going to gain by entering the land? What, mitzvahs maisias, practical implementation of mitzvahs? What do we need that for? You know what kind of headache that brings? And all the, type, uh, all the types of you know, city building and infrastructure and uh, agriculture. And what do we need it for? Right now we're in yeshiva. You know, we're... we're, we're fed by mon that rains upon us. We have the water from the Bereshel Miriam. So why should we enter the land and get caught up in all types of mundane stuff which is going to distract us from, from spirituality? And that's why they feared it. That's why they feared it. They didn't fear uh, military uh, defeat because they already knew that uh, from experience that they could have a miraculous victory. They feared the greatest enemy that they feared at this point was not a military foe. It was the very nature of the physical world to consume us. In fact, that's what they described it as. They said that, that, that the land, in, in, it devours its inhabitants. They didn't mean the land so much as the earthliness, the worldliness devours its inhabitants. So... Um, they didn't want any of that. They didn't, they didn't want to become pulled away from the spiritual truths. And so that's why they came back and they said, it's not a good idea. Skip it. And uh, Meishu Rabbeinu basically told them, you guys missed the whole point of Judaism because the whole point is to 
practice Tayag Mitzvah, 613 commandments, souls in bodies, in this world, making use of physical objects, thereby refining the physical world, elevating the Klipas Neuge into Kedusha every time we use resources around us, whether it's the money that we spend on procuring the objects for a mitzvah, or it's the objects themselves, it's the lulav and esrog that we shake, or it's the cowhide that we use for a mezuzah, or it's the bricks you use to build a yeshiva. All these physical objects, when they're enlisted in the performance of a mitzvah, so they get upgraded, they get elevated from their default setting, which is the mundane klipas neuge, to kedusha, um, and then they become overtly, see the interesting thing is they remain physical and yet they reveal that they are part of Hashem's plan. If the only way things became holy was to ship them up to heaven, you know, what's the point there? Beam me up Scotty, right? You have to get rid of the, the, the physical stuff in order for it to be holy? No. The whole point is that in the physical world, remaining physical, these things can be um, converted into holiness by being put to use in, in the proper way. And that's really, that's what Yiddishkeit is about. It's about entering the land, leaving the, the, the comfy midbar and going into the land and getting involved in all types of day-to-day mundane stuff. Now, I'll, I'll mention um, that this is one of the differences between men and women. That men tend to think of religious life as purely spiritual, almost like an escape from day-to-day life, you know, run to the shul and go be spiritual. And of course I'm overgeneralizing because that's what a generalization is, but women uh, tend to have a certain innate sensitivity to the fact that real uh, religious life is everywhere, all times, whatever you're doing. You don't have to go to a special place. You don't have to be in a special mode. You just, everything you do, even if it's like cooking and cleaning and taking care of kids, even mundane stuff that, you know, it's not thrilling and not glorious stuff. You know, it's a lot more glorious to go to shul and be the chazin or to, you know, to get an aliyah. These things are, you know, very glorious and they feel very spiritual. But that's not the limit of what religious life is. For a Jew, religious life is in all manners of, of being, everything that we do. And, uh, and so... At any rate, one of the differences between men and women is that men tend to be, the Kabbalah explains it as the difference between Zah and Malchus, that uh, men tend to seek spiritual escapism and women tend to see how godliness can be integrated into day-to-day life. The Shechina is an embodiment of divine femininity. And the Shechina has that same property of Shechina is from Shechenes. It's indwelling. It comes down into the world. It doesn't fly off into heaven and escape. It wants to be in the world in a nurturing capacity, taking care of the creation. So those are two very different, you know, like one's (laughs) going up, one's going down. Now, the truth is when they get married, they both have to take U-turns in order to meet each other in the middle. Uh, that's why Achosin is Moloshin Nechus Darga, let's go down a drop. And Kala is Moloshin Klois Hanefesh, expiration, going up. So they have to like sort of turn, <laughs> the turn from their normal directions and meet each other. But um, femininity has an anchoring effect on masculinity. At any rate, I'm saying all this as a, as a preface to something very interesting. 
um, that the 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 Torah tells us regard it lists the names of all of these uh, spies. It, it lists them all. These are the names of the men that um, Hashem sent or had Moshe send. And uh, yeah, so in Posa Gimel, it says, uh, They were all men, heads of the Jewish people. They were heads of tribes. Kula Manashim. Kula Manashim. What does it mean, Kula Manashim? You were all men. So Rashi says that Kula Manashim is a Lashen Cheshivas. Kula Manashim, Kula Manashim, Shbemikra Lashen Cheshivas. Ve'esa Shak Shedem Hoyu. Rashi says that they were men means they were men. You know, they were mentioned. You know, that means prominent people, respectable people, because at that point, before they chickened out, they were kshedim, they were kosher, they were uh, proper people. But uh, the Alter Rebbe in Lekut <coughs> says something, uh, when I saw it the first time, it just blew me away. Kulam uh, they were such men. They were such men. When they had an opportunity to integrate Judaism into day-to-day mundane life, they were like, mm, I'll pass. They were such men. They didn't get that if you can't integrate Judaism into mundane day-to-day life, you're missing the boat. They thought that they could have a purely spiritual Judaism. Learning, ideas, philosophy, and that they didn't have to deal with you know, the nitty-gritty, the boring stuff, the, the very non-glamorous stuff. Kulamanashim, they were such men. So, uh, what does it have to do with grapes? What it has to do with grapes is <clears throat> that the fear of the spies, and, and ultimately what they succumbed to and why they failed their mission, was that it was not possible to live as loyal Jews while also dealing with the physical world. That was the, I mean, they were dead wrong, but, and it was a debacle, and it was a tragedy, a bechiel adoirites, it calls it, a, a, a wailing for the ages. But uh, what was the message to them before they left? The message was, before they even left, Moshe is setting it up, and he's letting them know, listen, you're going to go out and you're going to scout the land. That's your mission. Scouting the land doesn't just mean in that immediate context, the spies scouting the land. Scouting the land is speaking to each one of us. You know, this is, this is Toyota's directive to every individual at all times. You look around, you scout out the land. You look at the physical world. And you're trying to decide, you know, is there, is there place in this world for a, for a loyal Jew? You know, and some people come to the conclusion, well, no, and therefore I'm going to sequester myself and I'm going to avoid the world. And I don't, 
I don't care what happens around me. I'll just build my uh, my own ghetto walls higher and thicker, and you know, let the world be damned because it's it's irredeemable. That's one attitude. Another attitude is the exact opposite extreme, also unhealthy. If you can't beat them, join them. Okay, fine. So let me go into the world and let me forget about my 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 duties as a as a neshama, and let me just live it up, try to succeed, have a nice life, you know, become a materialist. And th those are both dead wrong. The spiritualist and the materialist are both wrong. The Jewish mission is the integration of both. That's, uh, I mean, that's really what Matan Torah was. The revelation at Har Sinai was what the Medrash calls Bittal that there had been a decree since the time of creation that the spiritual and the material could not integrate with each other. They could not blend. And when Torah was given, it gave us the ability to blend the two. How? Through mitzvahs maisis, through physical performance of mitzvahs. Not meditations, not ideas, not spiritual truths, but physical actions which embody these spiritual truths. And that's why Torah was given in this world, not in heaven. That's why Torah was given to souls and bodies, not to angels. The angels wanted the Torah. Hashem said, it's not going to work. So, the, the, the Jews at that time, as well as the Jews today, were looking around, were scouting out the land. We're, 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 trying, to, uh, we're coming to, trying to come to a decision whether it is viable to be Jewish in this world. And, you know, it's very easy to make one of two extreme ex mistakes. You know, one is just to renounce the world and avoid the world and try to hide from the world. The other is just throw yourself into the world, become part of the world, become influenced by the world. And, in fact, you know, when Jews join the world, you, always, you see what always happens. Anytime when Jews become like everybody else, they're never just like everybody else. When the Jews try to show that they're like everybody else, they become the most extreme, most intense version of that. So when a Jew throws himself into the material world, oh, he does it with, a, with an extra oomph. Right? So we're looking around the world and we're trying to assess what are, what are the, what's the viability here? You know, how, how, uh, how realistic is it to be Jewish in the world? And we say, stop. Before you even leave, before you even begin to gather uh, the data, we want to just cue you in on something. The grapes are in season. What? The grapes are in season? Yeah. These are the days <clears throat> of the ripening of the grapes. What, what does it mean, these are the days of the ripening of the grapes? Look around the world. The whole world is a grape. The grape with the thin, translucent skin, where if you hold it up to the light, you can see the seed inside. That's a metaphor for this entire world. That if you look at the world, yeah, it's covered over with a klipa. It's got a skin over it. So you look at the world, you don't overtly, <clears throat> immediately see Kedusha, holiness. But you should know, it's not Gimoklipas Tameus, it's not opaque klipa. It's not irredeemable klippa. It's a thin little grape skin klippa that's translucent. So that if you have imagination and you look 
for more than a second and you try to see through the facade, you try to see through the veneer, you will perceive there's a spark of godliness in everything and that's the spark that allows it to be used for the service of Hashem. So it's just like the grape where you can see the seed inside when you hold it up to the light. So too, when you hold up this world to the light of Torah, you can see the seed, meaning the spark inside, the godly, the, the Dvar Hashem is what we call it, the, the spark of, of divine speech, which is Mahave, which enlivens and, and gives existence to that thing. And you can perceive how this thing, you know, the, the computer that we're using right now to, to talk to people uh, who aren't physically here, and the chairs that you're sitting on, and, and the bricks of the walls around us, and, and the aforementioned coffee. All this is mundane stuff that we're enlisting, that we're bringing into serving Hashem. So these are all grapes. These are all grapes, because a person who doesn't look deeply would just look at it and say, well, it's not holy. It's not holy, let me run away from it. But a person who has a deeper view looks at it and says that's a grape that's a grape that's a grape that's you know look hold it up to the light the light of Torah and perceive you you can see the core you can see that there's a spark inside that that is that is useful and can be and can be enlisted in the service of Hashem so this is what we have to know that when we go out to scout out the land each one of us our own personal mission in this world we have to we have to know that uh your soul entered the world at what time? At the time when the grapes are in season. The grapes are always in season. The proverbial grapes. What do you say? Always in season. Always in season. That's a good title. We'll call it that. Always in season. Yeah. So uh, take advantage when, when, when Hashem, through Hashgah Protest, leads you to a certain opportunity in this physical world to make use of certain resources or to uh, have a, a certain possession or a certain wealth or whatever it is. Um, it's not like we have to justify these things and say, well, I'm, I'm entitled to a little comfort. I'm, I'm entitled to a little, you know, uh, what do you call it, creature comfort. No, that, that's, that's, we're, we're not entitled to anything. We're not entitled to anything. Rather, look at it in a different way. That when I have physical resources... I can serve Hashem with these resources. I can use them as kalim lelokus. I can turn them into vessels for godliness. Because after all, innately they already are sort of primed for that purpose. They're like grapes. You just have to look deeper and see how there's already a godly spark. You just have to be slightly creative to see how to, how to use it. I'll tell you one uh, uh, quick thing. Th th there was a chosid in Shklov named uh, Reb Pinchas. And... Uh, Reb Pinchas was a big uh, chassid of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya. And he had the biggest house in Shklov. And he hated it. He hated it because he was a chassid. He didn't want a big house. He didn't care about a big house. And uh, by the way, I don't know what a big house in Shklov meant 200 years ago. I'm, I'm sure we wouldn't be that impressed. But <laughs> for that time and that place, it was considered a mansion. So he once, he told the Alter Rebbe, he said, I, I can't stand this big house. I got to get rid of this house. And the Alter Rebbe told him, Reb Pinchas, you have to have a big house. He says, why do I have to have a big house? He says, because um, your house is the nicest house in Shklov. And then when they need to make meetings, like when they get together and they're going to hire a new Malamed or they're going to hire a new Shaykhet, they always make the meeting in your house.
No, the parlor meeting. <laughs> they, always, they always make it at your house because you have the nicest house. And since it's in your house, then they end up taking a shaykhet who has Yiddish Shemayim and a Malamud with Yiddish Shemayim. We're taking the right guys. So the fact that all the meetings are in your house, it ends up, it's affecting the community in such a positive way. So who are you to say you don't want to have a nice house when it has so much benefit to so many other people? So you're going to have to live with it. You know, you're going to have to plug your nose and just deal with having a big house. Uh, that's it. We should all have lots of nice material things and use them for the proper things and uh, have the vision and the creativity to, to see past the very thin, translucent skin that's covering these things and see to the core, to the seed, the godly spark, and uh, know how to use it in the right way. I had a whole other thing I wanted to tell you, but I, I realize I don't have time for that. I'll do it. I'll tell you. Want to know one other thing? I'll tell you one other thing. There's an interesting thing here about when did Kalev start arguing with the spies? Um, it sort of seems out of place. Um, yeah, Posig Lamed. Yas Kalev Esaam El Mesha. Kalev silenced the nation regarding Mesha. Vayemer Ola Naile, we will surely go up. Vayorashnu Esa, and we will inherit the land. Kiyachal Nuchala, because we can do it. They hadn't yet said they can't do it at this at this point. Um. So why was he protesting? Why was he objecting? They only say in the next Pesach, We can't do it. Because the people there are stronger than us, or stronger than Hashem. Depends how you read it. So he's arguing with them before they started arguing. And yet he was right. So how did he know, like, he's sort of like preemptively arguing. Like, how did he know they were going in that, di- that direction? So I'll tell you something very interesting I saw in a sicha, in, in the Rebbe's sicha. The previous thing about the grape is also in the Rebbe's sicha, but it's a different sicha. Um, how did he know what direction they were already heading? If you look at Meisha's request... Mesha's request, when Mesha tells the spies what to go look for, Mesha says, Go see the land, what it is. And the people who are sitting there, who are dwelling there, if they're, if they're strong or weak, if they are few or they are many. So, He's talking about, go find out what kind of people live there. And then Meisha says, Then find out what the nature of the land is. If it's good or if it's bad. What kind of, uh, what kind of uh, cities do they dwell in? Are they in like open cities or walled cities? Fortresses? So Mesha first says, go find out the people, then the land. 
Now, I know the first thing he says, Urisim is audits, go find the land, but Rashi explains, audits here means the effect that the, the audits has on the people. There are lands that make people stronger and lands that make people weaker. So the first thing is, the first Pasuk, I mean, Pasuk Yudches, Moshe is saying, find out what kind of people live there. Then the next Pasuk, Yudtes, Moshe says, find out what kind of land it is. Okay? So take note. First, Moshe says, find out what kind of people live there. Then Moshe says, find out what kind of land it is. Now, when they report, when they come back and they report, they came back and they said, we, we, sent, we went to the land, We've come, we're coming from the land that you sent us to. It is flowing with milk and honey. And here's its fruit. Then they start describing the people. But you should know the people there are very strong and uh, they uh, have uh, big uh, cities and we saw giants there. So you see, they flipped it. Moshe says, find out the people and then find out the land. They report, I want to tell you about the land. It's flowing with milk and honey, but the people are very tough. You're not going to be able to beat them. As soon as that happened, Vyas Kolev Esa'am El Mesha. Kolev silenced the nation and he said, Hey guys, we can do it. How did he know? They didn't say yet we can't do it. They didn't say we can't do it until the next Pasuk. Because here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. Such an important lesson. Kolev already knew these guys were going to chicken out. The minute that they mentioned the land before the people. The land is talking about the bounty. What it is that you have to gain. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's such a nice land. The people is the obstacle you have to go through to get to that bounty. These are the people you're going to have to go through. So it means the challenge or the difficulties. When they put the goal, meaning the ultimate reward first, and then the challenges that you need to go through in order to get to the goal, second, he knew they were corrupted already. Moshe asked, go find out two things for me. The exact opposite order. He said, find out. What kind of people are there? Meaning, who we're going to be dealing with? Who do we have to fight? And then find out the nature of the land. Is it bountiful? You know, what kind of what kind of a land it is. So he said first the challenges you have to go through, and then the end goal or end uh, reward. Let me explain something to you. Um, there's something called extrinsic motivation. There's something called intrinsic motivation. It's been studied. Somebody who uh, does a job because he's being compensated for it is relatively unmotivated. It doesn't matter how sweet you make the reward or how painful you make the punishment. It's an extrinsic motivation. Extrinsic, EX, the Latin root means outside of, like exit or exodus. So it means that the, 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 the reason he's doing it is outside of the thing itself. 
Then there's intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic, I-N, in, it means in. Intrinsic motivation means that you value the, the, the task itself. So, uh, you know, actually I was interviewed about this in uh, AMI magazine a couple weeks ago for the Schwarz edition. I stopped writing my column over there, but from time to time they come to me and they ask me different uh, Q&A. So they asked me about telling kids about Gehenim. And I, and I, knew, I knew what the conversation was going to turn into. Should we talk about more Oynish or more Schar? And I realized that they're, they're stuck in a loop. It's not like more Oynish or more Schar. How about neither? You understand? Gehenim is the, is the Oynish, is the punishment, right? And then there's Ganeiden, which is the Schar. But they're both two sides of the same coin. You keep emphasizing schar and oinish, what we call carrot and the stick. Right? So you're leading a mule and, and you use the carrot. You know, he wants the sweet carrot and you use that. That's the positive. And then you have the stick. You hit him. You know, that's the negative. Right? So you have Ganeiden is the, is the carrot and Gehenim is the, is the stick. But all of this is extrinsic motivation. He's not valuing the job itself. He's doing the job because of he loves the reward or he, or, he, or he hates the punishment. So I said to them, instead of asking, you know, should we talk more about Gehenna or less about Gehenna, what's your alternative? That, to, 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 oh, let's, let's, let's stress the, the, the positive about the reward. How about let's de-emphasize all reward and punishment. Not that it's not true, of course it's true, but the, the Mishnah says, Don't be like the servants who serve their, their master in order to receive a reward. It doesn't say there isn't a reward, it just says there shouldn't be the motivation. Don't have that be on your mind. The Alter Rebbe, by the way, says, Pros is Moloshin Prusa. Prusa means like a piece of bread when you cut off a little piece from the loaf. So he says you should know that even the biggest Gan Eden is just a Prusa, it's just a piece. It's not the real reward. The real reward is schar mitzvah mitzvah, the effect that the mitzvah has on making the world adira b'tachtenim, that we transform this world into a, in, into a place that's holier than any heaven. Right? But your reward in the afterlife, okay, it's nice, but it pales in comparison to the, the intrinsic value of the project itself. So anyways, I was talking about this uh, in, the, in the, that, that, that Q&A, and I told them, you've got to give kids an intrinsic motivation. You have to tell them that their mitzvahs have an effect. Instead of saying, well, how much will I get paid if I do it? Or how much am I going to get knast, you know, fined if I don't do it? How about explain to me the importance of, of the job itself? No, they don't do that. Okay, so it has to be done. And, and, and if it's not done, I want to tell you something. The limits of extrinsic motivation always will, 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 they will always surface at some point. Because at some point, the job's just not worth the reward. Or, at some point, the punishment is worth the pleasure of doing the sin. So it, it's never going to really ensure any type of consistent performance. But when you teach somebody, no, the mitzvah has intrinsic value. The mitzvah is valuable unto itself. The fact that you're also rewarded for it, that's a bonus! That's beautiful! But that's not the reason why we do it. So Kalav knew they were corrupted already because they roll in, they're like, oh, first of all, you should know it's a gorgeous land. It's flowing with milk and honey. Oh, but the people there are very strong. They're very hard to defeat. Kalav was like, uh-oh, these guys were corrupted already. They're talking about the reward first 
and then what you have to go through in order to get to the reward. They're al they already lost. They, he, I don't even have to wait for them to say, let's forget it, let's, let's abort the mission, let's not do it, because I already know where they're headed. Because once you put the reward first, then sooner or later, inevitably, you will come to a point where you will say, what I have to go through in order to get it is not worth the hassle. Now, it happened to be they came to that point much sooner than later, right away. But Kolevnu, it's only a matter of time now, because once they're putting the reward first, I know it's inevitable they will come to a point where they will where they'll make an evaluation, and they'll say, it's just too much hassle. It's not worth it. When Moshe sent them, he did the exact opposite. He said, tell me about the people we're going to have to go through to get there. Then tell me about the land that we're going to gain after we've gotten there. In other words, the process and the result are on equal footing. You know, it, 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 there's an expression, it's, it's not just the destination, it's also the journey, right? So when the value, the intrinsic value of the work itself um, presents itself as, as something that's like, not just, oh, this is a necessary evil, I have to go through it in order to get the thing that I really want, but rather, the task itself has value. The struggle itself has value. Then, it, that, then it's a whole different level of commitment. It's a whole different level of commitment because then I, I, I appreciate not what am I going to get out of it and then I'm making an evaluation. Well, is it really worth it? No, no, no. This itself is what I'm getting out of it. So if I'm doing a mitzvah and I have to ask myself, well, how good is the schar and Gan Eden really going to be? You know what? I already lost. But if I'm, if I'm doing a mitzvah and I say, wow, this is beautiful. I'm doing a mitzvah. And even though it's hard and even though there are challenges, but... This, this is what it's all about. This, oh, and I'm also getting schar? Okay, that's nice, but you don't even have to talk to me about that right now. It's going to happen anyway. But the fact that I value the job, I value the work. I value the work. I mean, you could go a lot deeper than this. You can compare it to an interpersonal relationship. You know, talk about like, like spouses where like, uh, you know, it's very... Uh, I don't know, it's almost crass to say it, but, you know, th think about, like, a husband and wife. Like, well, you know, if, I, if I'm nice to you, <laughs> if, I, if I take you out for dinner, if I buy you a present, you know, what am I going to get out of it? Oh, that's all? Nah, it's not worth it. <laughs> you can't. Like, like, come on. Like, whatever happened to just bonding for the sake of bonding? No, 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 no. What am I going to get out of it? Or conversely, you know, and, and, if, and if I don't take out the garbage, what's my wife going to do? Divorce me? Eh, so I won't take out the garbage. And, and by the way, I had somebody say this to me. I'm not making this metaphor up because a, a, a guy actually said this to me. He said, and I'm not going to describe who it was, but somebody who should have known better, a religious person, somebody I consider to be learned, at least in certain areas. And... Uh, and, and he said to me, well, if you don't emphasize schar v'aynish, why would anybody do anything? Why would you do any mitzvahs? If you're not going to get punished for, for doing Vedas, why would you do any mitzvahs? And I said, and if your wife wouldn't divorce you, even if you're mean to her, would you be mean to her? And he's like, well, yeah, that's why you're not mean to your wife, because she would divorce you if you're not. <laughs> like, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, oh, my goodness. So this guy's basically saying... You know, don't do Avedas because of Gan Eden, and don't be mean to your wife because, you know, she'll leave you. Like, 
it's it's hard to wrap your head around that, that, that this is the way. But I, I, at the end of the day, I can't really fault this person because this is how he was trained. This is how he was taught. He was trained with extrinsic motivation. It's all extrinsic motivation. So at any rate, let, let me put together these two concepts I was telling you about because actually they're one chapter of Tanya. I told you there are two different sikhs from, from the Rebbe, but they're really one chapter of Tanya. Chapter 10 of Tanya, it talks about the B'nai Aliyah. Right. It's just not, it doesn't have to be so clear as that. It could be like you're going to get, by you watching the kid, you're gaining, like you're giving, you know? I don't know. Well, even that's an extrinsic motivation because that's like tit for tat. Like I, I, I do you a favor, you do me a favor. That's what I'm saying. So then, so, so even, more, right. even that's an extrinsic motivation. How about you watch the kids because, it, first of all, men always say, I'm babysitting. You're babysitting your kids, right? Right. How much you get paid for babysitting? <laughs> At any rate, yeah, yeah. You just do it because it needs to be done because it's the right thing to do, and you value doing the right thing. It's not what am I going to get out of it? It's not about barter, emotional barter. Anyways. Uh, the, the first thing I was talking about was that the, the world is a grape. And the second thing I was talking about is extrinsic motivation, how it fails us, or the value of intrinsic motivation. So if you look in chapter 10 of Tanya, it talks about both these concepts at the same, at the same time. It says that there are people called B'nai Aliyah, very lofty people. Why are they called B'nai Aliyah? For two reasons. One is because they do what they do for the sake of the Most High. L'tzerich Gavaya, like the Shalach calls it. So they serve Hashem for altruistic motives. Like the Zayah says, Who is a chassid? One who is kind to his maker. Be kind to Hashem. Like, be a mensch. <laughs> Hashem wants you to do this, do it for him. Just, what am I going to get out of it? Come on, don't be so crass. Who cares what you're going to get out of it? Hashem asked for it, do it for him. Oh, but I'll get some guy Eden from it. Stop it already. Just do it for Hashem. Be nice to Hashem. All right, so they're called B'nai Aliyah for that reason, because they do things for the sake of the, the Most High. They're also called B'nai Aliyah because everything they do is for the sake of, it's called in Kabbalah, halos man, the raising up of the, of the main nukvin, of the, the feminine waters, which means the refinement of the physical world. That everything they do is to cause a, uh, a hisapcha of chasheichel and to transform dark to light, which means taking mundane things and turning them into spiritual things through using neutral physical objects and enlisting them in the service of Hashem. So these are both uh, reasons why they're called B'nai Aliyah. And the Alta Rebbe there in chapter 10 says that the, both of these explanations are the same. They're one and the same. They're synonymous. Because at the end of the day, what does it mean to do something for Hashem's sake? It means for the sake of Dira B'tachtoinim. So, they're one and the same. If you realize the world is a grape, the world can be refined, the world is redeemable, and its redemption is in your hands through the practical mitzvahs that you perform in this physical world. And at the same time, you realize that the purpose of, of, of Yiddishkeit is to serve Hashem. It's not to serve you. It's not a self-help program. It's not for your payoff. It's for Him. It's really one and the same concept. What does it mean to serve Hashem? It means to give Him this world in its ultimate refined form.